Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. a policy of, uh, as you know, good governance, transparency, democracy, human rights. And we believe in engaging with countries which have the same sort of agenda. Our immediate neighbours, Sri Lanka, India, would always uh, be our closest allies and friends. To those who are sceptical about climate change, I would say that uh, we feel the effects. The waves go higher than the islands and it seeps into the islands. It destroys property. It it has so many effects on uh, our life. That gave me the strength, although I was beaten up on the 7th, to go out on the 8th, to go out on the 9th. And to make sure that no child ever says that in our country again. If you don't do it today, I always feel that your children will be out there doing it tomorrow. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And this episode is like no other that I've recorded. We've only done around about 40 episodes so far, but I reckon it's going to remain unique for quite some time. We are speaking with the Honourable Maria Didi, the Minister of Defence for the Republic of Maldives, as part of the Women in National Security project that we run here at the National Security College. This pod was recorded approximately uh, two weeks prior to publication, and I have to say, it took on a nature that I was not expecting, uh, but it could not have been more appropriate for the times in which we live. As a backdrop, I hope our listeners can keep in mind the recent large-scale protests and civil unrest in places like Hong Kong, Iraq, Lebanon, Iran, Chile, Egypt, France, Indonesia, and that's not just Jakarta, but also West Papua. And I'm sure that there's other movements out there that we've missed, given that there's so much going on in the world right now. Things just seem to fly under the radar. There are tens of millions of people on the streets across the world, many of them dying in their protests against government corruption, incompetence, authoritarianism, unpopular policies, economics, etc., etc. There are numerous reasons why people are moving out onto the street, but there is a trend moving across the world right now of popular unrest. And as I listened to Minister Didi in the studio, I could not help but think of the rise of society that we are seeing at the moment that has spiked in the past, with examples being the Arab Spring, the colour revolutions, the numerous protest movements during the Cold War in places like the US, Hungary and France, 
just to name a few. And of course, we can trace popular movements back through history to time immemorial. Minister Didi is part of this history herself. She was the first woman lawyer ever in the Maldives, uh, which if you read into her story, which I'll put up on some links on the website, you will see this is an achievement accomplished in spite of serious adversity. Since then, Uza Maria has gone on to start her own successful law practice in the Maldives, and since then has transited into politics. As we hear from the minister, it's also worth keeping in mind for those who aren't overly familiar with uh, Maldivian history, that the Maldives did not gain full independence until as late as 1968. Prior to that, it was a British protectorate, a sultanate, and so on. After independence, the country was dominated by President Mahmoud Abdul Gayoom, who many describe as a dictator. Following a popular uprising in 2003, the Maldives liberalised and passed legislation allowing political parties in 2005, and then in 2008 there was a general election under a new constitution. Since then, the nation has seen its fair share of political upheaval and changes of government in ways that many will argue were less than democratic. Minister Didi played a significant role in the battle for democracy in the Maldives, and is now leading in decision-making for the nation's security on issues such as strategic relations and climate change, to name a few. Let's hear all about that from this very inspirational woman in national security. G'day, Minister. Thanks for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Uh, good day, Chris. I tried to say it Australian. Oh, did you it did? sound anything Wonderful close job. to it? Wonderful <laughs> job. Thank you. Now, I, did I just see from your Twitter feed that you saw a basketball game in Australia just recently? Uh, yes, uh, you're right. I and did go for a basketball game in you Australia. You used to play basketball, didn't you? I do, but uh, my daughter plays, play, she's 14, but she plays for the national team. Oh, wow. And I really wanted her very envious, oh, which well is why done. I really <laughs> went. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, we've just come from a, another discussion that we had uh, at the National Security College. And in that discussion, you, you spoke about the Maldivian experience or your actual experience in democracy. Now, you're quite unique. I don't usually interview my guests personally, but you have a very unique story. And I think it's quite inspiring to other women who are considering becoming part of the national security community in Australia or any country where they listen to this podcast. Could you give us an idea of how you came to be the first woman lawyer in the Maldives? My dad used to say that each of us should uh, take up a field which we liked, but because we were 11 of us, you know, a whole football team. Wow. Uh, I decided when I was small that I wanted to be a lawyer. Now, uh, my uh, brothers and sisters used to always tease me after I became a, a barrister that the only thing she knew was to speak. You cannot win an argument with her. So this, she decided to take it up as a trade. Uh, but uh, I was always interested in what was right. Uh, I was always interested in justice. Uh, I always thought about it even when I was younger. And when I had a, a, an opportunity to study, I went and studied and I uh, came back when I 
came back to the Maldives, uh, there was some sort of uh, feeling in the really, uh, in the justice minister then that uh, women might not be able to practice in the law. Uh, but the president then, Mamun Abdul Qayyum, he said, no, women can and they will have that opportunity. So I was able to uh, uh, practice law. So... And, That's how, and, and how did you move from being a private practitioner into being part of the government? Well, when I was practicing privately, I noticed that there was a corruption, a lot of corruption in the law. So I went to meet the uh, attorney general and I spoke to him about corruption in the law. But that was five years after uh, I had been practicing in the private sector. And he told me, you cannot change things from outside. You come work with me and we'll change things from the inside. Um, I went in and I still, uh, after another five years, I thought, no, I can't do that from even inside. Um, then uh, by that time, a 19-year-old boy had been murdered in the jails and the protesters who protested in the jail were also shot and many died. So at that turning point, I decided I would go out, get elected, because even the, it, it, then I found out that the president is also talking about change and reform. So th I thought I could uh, contribute more by being an elected MP. So I got myself out. I started uh, campaigning in Mali Atoll, which is the atoll closest to where I live. Uh, two, three months into my campaign, I found out that I was pregnant. Oh, well, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough. Um, and I've had two miscarriages as well. So the doctor advised bed rest. I thought, no, this, has to, this is my chance. So either the baby sticks or I go on with the campaign. So I did campaign. I won the seat and I got the baby as well. Wow. Inshallah. Wow. Being a minister, you are very short of time, so we're going to have to do some quick questioning here for this podcast. So forgive me if I ask you quick, yes. but we've got a lot to get through. Yes. Maldives is, is a fairly young nation in terms of since they gained their independence from, from the British. How would you characterise the Maldivian experience of democracy? Uh, it's just like any other democracy. You know, democracy doesn't come overnight. We aspire to these ideals, but democracy has to be has to be planted, seeded, grown, look after like a very delicate plant. Um, uh, we amended the constitution in two thousand seven. We contested for elections, and in two thousand eight, we won the elections, and we came into power as a coalition government. But uh, after three years, uh, on seventh February two thousand twelve, our government was very controversially thrown out. Uh, we at the party, uh, our government, uh, that was the government party there. We claim it's a coup because it was a retired colonel who came out of the uh, MNDF building who said the president has no choice except to resign. So uh, we and the conditions that day, I myself was very much beaten up on the 7th of uh, uh, February. You, you were physically beaten up physically yourself? Physically beaten up. You'll see photos on the internet as well. The oh police my. beating me up, you know, to, uh, 
so uh, on the seventh as well. But then we rose up again, and on the eighth, the public all came out on the streets, and we were there. And again, I was beaten up on the eighth of February as well. Uh, when you uh, said uh, those words, you know, about like my daughter, she was born uh, when I was like, you know, fighting for the democratic cause. Um, I can remember on 7th February, uh, I went to that Republican Square, as they called, because to see what was going on. And I, I, myself and my husband were both beaten up because my husband told me that day that I shouldn't go alone. It looks too dangerous. So he came with me. Um, when uh, when my daughter came from home, we were both sitting at home because he's had a heart attack and he takes blood thinners as well. So he was completely covered with blood because he bled from his head and all that. So my daughter came from school. She looked at us and then she ran up the stairs. And then she said, the police have beaten up my mom and dad. They nearly died. And that's when I realized that I'm never, ever going to let, you know, any other person's child have to say that ever again. That gave me the strength, although I was beaten up on the 7th, to go out on the 8th, to go out on the 9th. And to make sure that no child ever says that in our country again, that police weren't going to beat people up and the police were. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm going to uh, be brutal to people here afterwards. It turned, it came with that 19-year-old boy dying in jail. You know, I wanted to go out and I wanted to... Um, uh, do things, uh, you know, bring in reform, bring in change and make police also more accountable. And uh, my resolve got f uh, more firmer when I heard my six-year-old daughter say that. And inshallah, it will never happen in our country ever again. Uh, that is an amazing story and it's an amazing commitment. Um, it's extremely humbling to hear and I'm feeling as emotional as you are just hearing it. I, I, I can't help but, but wonder how you must feel when you see other situations that are happening in the world now, whether it be Hong Kong, whether it be Lebanon, whether it be Iraq, and you see these other people out there, whether you agree with their cause or not, but their commitment to put their bodies on the line uh, for their form of governments or for their, for their wish of representation or for just a fair go as well. Well, I can only tell you uh, a few days later when I was going out for a protest, my daughter held onto my hand tight and he said, Mom, don't make me sad. So I said, are you sad that I'm going? She said, no, but I would feel sad if you get hurt. I know you do it for us. You go out there, 
but be safe, she said. So that's how I feel. It's not easy to be safe, but try to be safe, but try to go out there as well. If you don't do it today, I always uh, uh, feel that your children will be out there doing it tomorrow. Yeah. So every parent wants them, their children not to be hurt. And I always uh, tell that we do it f- because so that our children don't have to do the same thing tomorrow. Mm, and this also leads on to the discussion that we have quite often at the National Security College about increasing women's participation in national security policy making as well. You're, you've been confronted with challenges that women in Australia and other developed countries may not necessarily be uh, confronted with uh, have you got any advice for women that are thinking about a career in whether it be law or politics or national security policy making? I would tell the women uh, out there who just go out and do it, you know, because uh, on 7th February, I was beaten out uh, by the security forces. Today, I'm the Minister for Defence. I'm working with them. You know, you have to be able to forgive and forget. Uh, You have to be able to work with them. If you want to bring change, you have to show them that you are humble, that you do not hold anything personal, that uh, you are willing to work with these people, although uh, they have somehow uh, knowingly or unknowingly hurt you. And uh, I can remember my colleague, he, he always, who was there on the 7th of February uh, uh, in Republican Square, he's an MP even now, he says, Mari, that's how they call me, every time I see you go into that building, my heart misses a beat, wondering whether you'll come out of there. But I tell you, the armed forces whom I work with very closely have been very polite and very nice to me since I went. Uh, I have promised them that I will not put on any, uh, I will not politicize them. I will not talk politics to them. I've come to help them, to manage them. And within this one year, I have uh, managed what I would see as uh, an achievement is I have increased the credibility of our armed forces in front of our public. The public loved them before they always saw uh, the security forces as some people who came in the way of uh, uh, their uh, needs because uh, in 2013 when we had the vote as well uh, the security forces uh, the the uh, minister then who was the one who had asked uh, the president to resign uh, was there uh, uh, saying that they are going uh, with the Supreme Court to cancel a perfectly valid vote. So uh, we've we've, uh, really put up uh, the face of uh, the Maldives National Defense Force as people who are there to help, who are 24 hours working to help. And if not for the cooperation and the love of the personnel inside, you know, uh, the MNDF personnel as well, the soldiers themselves, I wouldn't have been able to achieve this. So in fact... I needed them as much as they needed me. You know, it was a very complimentary relationship we had. Uh, we have even now, and we are doing a lot now, I believe, for the country and for, for the people. 
Yeah, it's amazing to me, one, the strength that you have to go out on the street and physically put your body on the line, but then actually work with some of the people who have been responsible for it. that. There's layers of strength in there that I find pretty amazing. Um, to move from the personal to the professional more so now, as Minister of Defence, uh, you you are part, at the pointy end of policymaking for a very strategic part of the world. We are in a, a time of geopolitical shifts and China is known to be moving into the Indian Ocean. I believe Maldives is one of the signatories to the Belt and Road Initiative, yet Maldives exists right off the shores of India and Sri Lanka. How how do you as a minister and how does Maldives as a country navigate its way through this, this shifting geopolitical landscape when you take economics, security and geography into account? Our government came in uh, with a manifesto and in that we have a policy of uh, as you know good governance transparency democracy human rights and we believe in engaging with countries which have the same sort of agenda we our foreign policy is quite well written it, we have an india first policy because uh, we believe it is good for maldives to have uh, our uh, neighbor who shares the same ideals as our uh, government uh, with us, uh, uh, doing the same sort of thing, looking after our borders. We have uh, exercises together. We have surveillance once a month. We get so much help uh, together. So with the Indian Ocean, being uh, us being surrounded by Indian Ocean, we believe in a free and open Indian Ocean, we believe in peace and stability in the region, and we believe uh, we can only achieve that uh, by having good relationships with our immediate neighbors. So Sri Lanka, India would always uh, be our closest allies and friends. We were having a discussion before we came into this room, and uh, I was under the impression that the highest point of elevation in Maldives was uh, five metres, somewhere on a golf course. You believe it may be three metres, even lower. Obviously, climate change is an existential issue for a country like Maldives. What policies do you have to deal with climate change? And um, how do you feel when you hear leaders of other countries that may be a little bit sceptical of climate change or sceptical of the science behind it? How do you approach this issue as someone who's in charge of almost uh, every, every kind of reactive policy in your island? Well, we, uh, I can only say that we uh, deal with climate change every day, you know. Uh, as the person responsible for the National Disaster Management Authority and as the Defence Forces, the first responders is any in any kind of uh, emergency, uh, we find uh, that uh, every uh, time when there is high tide, the waves go higher than the islands and it seeps into the islands. It destroys property. It, destroys, uh, it has so many effects on uh, our life. 
So uh, we feel uh, the effects of climate change. Even the water table in some islands are rising, you know, in the sense you can, uh, it's only about four feet under that you get the water. So what happens if it, if it rains very much, even the uh, toilets get flooded and uh, sewage seeps out from the toilets as well, which is very, very sad when you go and see this happen in real life. So uh, to those who are skeptical about climate change, I would say that uh, we feel the effects. Uh, I cannot, I'm not a scientist, so I cannot tell you how to stop it. But uh, as a person from an island nation who is in charge of disasters and who have to deal with it every uh, day, I would say that uh, this is being felt very real in our countries. And I'm sure many people have been to our beautiful islands for holidays, uh, for them to also really think about talking to their politicians to make sure that our islands, where they visit for their beautiful holidays, stay that way so that their children and the children to come after that would be able to witness the same sort of uh, dream, uh, idyllic holiday that they had in the Maldives, if not for anything else. Minister, as I said, you're very busy. You have very little time. And I thank you very much for being here and talking to us on the National Security Podcast. I would have loved to have spoken a little bit more about geopolitics, spoken about the return fighter issue that you're dealing with a lot Um, but either way this has been one of the most amazing podcasts that I've recorded you're very inspirational thank you very much for joining us thank you Chris thank you very much for having me on your program and good luck with future uh, visitors thank you thank you And a huge thanks to Minister Dee for coming into the studio to talk to us. She is a minister. Her time is in great demand, yet she still gave me the time to come into the studio and chat so candidly and so personally about her struggle for democracy in the Maldives. I would have loved to have discussed issues such as the problem of radicalisation, the problem of foreign fighters travelling to the Middle East. It's quite surprising, but only Jordan and Tunisia have a higher per capita count of their nationals travelling to fight in the jihadi wars in the Middle East. So they have a significant problem of radicalisation and dealing with returned fighters as well. There is also the issue of China's Belt and Road Initiative throughout the region, of which Maldives is a signatory. There's also issues of maritime security, maritime domain awareness, disaster response, and so many other issues that the minister is responsible for that she has very interesting thoughts on that I would have loved to have gotten to. But clearly, she can only give us so much time in her already packed itinerary in Australia. So we thank her very much for coming into the studio and we would love to hear from you. Any thoughts that you have on what the Minister has discussed on women's roles in national security or the fight for democracy within authoritarian countries? You can let us know by hitting hitting us up at Twitter using Apps Policy Forum or at NatSecPod. Or you can get onto our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. Or you can go old school and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. And of course, we would love some feedback from you or even a five-star rating on whatever platform you pod with. And let us know if there's any issues you'd like us to discuss on this podcast in the future. Thanks for listening to this episode. 
and I'll speak to you on the next Nutsack Pod. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.